Hey, I'm Pastor Dave Ferguson. Welcome to Crosswalk Chattanooga's Weekend Teaching Podcast. We're glad you're with us. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, thank you. Man, so good to be here, you guys. I, you know, we watch you from afar, um, and it is fun to be able to... This Crosswalk thing is pretty amazing. Um, I don't know how long you've been coming. I don't know if you're visiting maybe for the first time. Um, but let me tell you, it is truly amazing to be a part of a community of churches that all are seeking to love well. Um, and that you can go to any one of our campuses. You're ever in Portland, please come by. Um, you'll have to do a few things if you come to Portland so you can fit in, like get a tattoo, um, not shower for a few days, uh, and, and that. But other than that, um, you know, come and hang out uh, and that. But I have to tell you that for me, coming to Crosswalk, Chattanooga is huge because you guys were the ones that made the rest of us think that this was possible. And so if it weren't for you and it wasn't for your leadership team, then I don't know that I would have called. I've known Pastor Tim for a long time. We've worked together on, on different things. But like to, to have you guys do what you did helped me say, you know what, maybe like, I have a heart for Portland. I grew up there. This is a place that I'd love to see something like this happen. And so it was exciting to be able to call. But that call probably wouldn't have happened without you guys stepping forward and doing what you did. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Because as much as you may love this place and this is your home, there are so many more people out there that don't have this. And so what I tell people in Portland on a regular basis is that what we do in this room matters. But how we do what we do is helping other people start these kinds of communities. And so it is a huge blessing and a gift to be here. Um, so yes, uh, my name is Patty McCoy. It's, it's technically Patrick Sean McCoy. Patrick is spelled with a D. It's old. Patty is P-A-D-D-Y, in case you're going to write that on my coffee cup. P-A-D-D-Y. Um, and it is, yes, Irish. And you may feel it's odd that I have to say that, but there are plenty of people when they first hear my name, they say, oh, are you Irish? They're, no, Asian, actually. I'm not Irish at all but thanks for asking. Um, and even though uh, that I grew up in Portland, I am, uh, I bleed hillbilly. <laughs> you should know this, because my family, uh, McCoy family is all from West Virginia, um, and that does mean that I am related to the Hatfield and McCoy clan. Um, so if there are Hatfields, we're gonna have words later. If they're McCoys, let's talk and figure out how to have those words with the Hatfields. Um, yeah, no, so uh, I, I will tell you that it's such a privilege for me uh, to be able to be here in this series because like Dave said, this, this series means a lot to me because I went through my own mental health journey and that's what I'm going to talk about today and share with you is my testimony and my story that I believe in part that I survived some horrible times of that in part to help other people to be able to come out of hiding to share their story and to get help and to get healing. Um, and so to be able to be a part of having this kind of a conversation here, because I believe full-heartedly that church should be the safest place for us to take risks and the safest place for us to ask questions and the safest place for us to be vulnerable. And sadly, that is not the case for too many people in too many churches, but we'll get there. I'll tell you a little bit, uh, a little bit more about myself to give you some context. So I uh, didn't have really a strange childhood or anything, nothing abnormal uh, growing up. I'm the youngest of three brothers. Any youngest children out there? Youngest siblings? Typically, they shout and yell, so that's unusual for you to be so quiet. It's too early. It's too early. Yeah, I haven't had my three cups yet. Um, 
Yeah, so uh, as a youngest sibling, there are two things that we struggle most with, right? One, we hunger for attention, which is why I'm on a stage in lights with a microphone. <laughs> Let's be clear. Um, and two, we, uh, if there are any sudden movements close to us, somebody goes to pick an eyelash off our cheek or, you know, a hair off our shoulder or something like that, we turn into a ninja, <laughs> right? We flinch at everything because we've been beat up by our older siblings for so much of our lives that now we're just trying to protect ourselves. So people would think that my wife beats me. It is mostly not true. Um, both my parents work in the medical field. I often say I was raised by a pack of wild nurses. Um, any nurses in the room? Yeah, all right. So here's what I often say growing up with nurses is that I had to wear a jacket even when it was 70 degrees outside because I could not get a cold. And two, my temperature was taken on a regular basis, sometimes orally. <laughs> it's typically the medical people that get that joke. Somebody's turning to somebody, I don't get it. What's, that's not, what's funny about that? Um, but growing up, I had always been, as long as I can remember, I'd always been a worrier. I worried about just everything. I worried about doing well in school. I worried about my mom when my dad filed for divorce when I was eight. I worried about my dad when we moved to the other side of the country to be with her family. Um, I worried about my brother who was picked on in school and bullied. I just plain worried. Now, for a time, uh, I was able to kind of keep this worry under control because I, I, I would deflect. I would try to make people laugh. I would try to help other people have a good time. And it was a way for me to kind of make them think I was doing okay and not worrying. And it gave me a little distraction. Fast forward, I go through high school, I go through college, I get married, have kids, start a career. Life is going well. I'm managing the worry. There's ups and downs in life, just like everybody has. But then there comes a place where something changed as I was approaching 30 that, that made that worry turn into something else. I was asked by my alma mater, Walla Walla University, um, to be the campus chaplain. And that meant that I was going to be responsible for the discipleship and spiritual care of over 2,000 faculty and staff. And even though my wife and I felt that that's what I was called to do, that God had been leading in our lives to that uh, opportunity, that once I accepted it, suddenly the worry turned to something else that I didn't quite understand. I started to think, the what ifs. What if I fail? What if I can't do this? What if there's some, I'm sure there's somebody out there better than me to do this. What if people find out that I'm a fraud, that I actually don't know anything? What if, what if, what if, and the thoughts were turning and turning and turning so much that it began to get in the way of how I was doing my daily life. In the coming weeks and months, I struggled to eat. I was not sleeping. I was losing weight. I just plain struggled. Uh, there were only three people in the world that knew what was happening with me. My wife, Trisha, uh, my, one of my best friends growing up, and then my mom, who was my only healthcare professional involved in the story at the time. I was so sure during this time that something was going to happen. I was going to do something that would cause a cascade of events that would lead to my ultimate demise. It was worst case scenario type of thoughts. And I was out of control with them. I couldn't stop that kind of thinking. Um, so I did my absolute best to hide what I was going through because I figured, well, if people learned what was happening with me, like one, I, I would certainly lose my job. I mean, I can't care for myself. How in the world am I gonna be able to care for anybody else? 
Um, and I thought that something's going to happen that's going to lead to my ultimate demise. That was, again, the thoughts that were going through my head. Now, it sounds strange on some level to think about it, but it's how I felt. And what you learn is that so many of our fears are based on lies we have either consciously or subconsciously chosen to believe, right? Uh, and look, I, I believe, I know we talked about mental health and demon possession, I believe the devil is real, not just a metaphor for evil, um, and I believe that the devil has a purpose. In John 10, Jesus said, the thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. And what is he seeking to steal, kill, and destroy? Anything that represents or reminds him of his enemy. You and I were created in the image of his enemy. In the image of God, we were created. And so he is out to see, uh, steal, kill, and destroy anything that reminds him of God. And that is us. And he'll use whatever means he can to do it. Now the rest of that verse is where we get the good news. If the thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy, then Jesus is the one who came to give us a rich and satisfying life. Other translations say, I have come to give you life, life abundant. So that's actually one of the first lessons I learned in the journey of mental health is to ask the question, what gives you life versus what takes it away? The litmus test on whether something is of or from Jesus or not, or it's from the enemy, is does it give you life or does it rob life away from you? Fears, worries, concerns, all these things rob you of life. They steal time away from you, right? So what are you thinking about? What are you spending your time on? Um, you know, is it giving you life or is it taking life away from you? One of those is from Jesus. The other one is very much not from Jesus. So it's a question to ask yourself. And not only is Jesus life-giving, um, we go to Jesus because Jesus, the Son of God, actually knows what it's like to struggle. He can empathize with us. The God of the universe knows. And the Garden of Gethsemane is one of the best stories to go to with this. In fact, in Hebrews, it says that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, yet he was without sin. I actually think, I, I argue with that verse. Sorry, Paul. Um, I argue with it because I think Jesus was tempted way worse than any of us were tempted. Because Jesus could have at any point accessed his divinity to to get out of the situations he was in, especially this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane. But he resisted, and he did that for us. So the story for the Garden of Gethsemane, which we'll touch on lightly in this, is it can be found in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I'm sure some of you know it well, but to uh, understand the timeline, Jesus is approaching the end of his time here on earth. And he knows how his end is going to come. And he's had his, what is called the Last Supper with the disciples, and they're heading out to the Garden of Gethsemane, a place that had been a place of retreat for them, a place they would go to prayer. So for the disciples, this feels just like another retreat. But for Jesus, it's not that. As Jesus gets closer and closer, he gets heavier and heavier. His demeanor shifts to something the disciples have never seen before. Because Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows that his closest companions are going to struggle. In fact, one of them will betray him, another one will deny him, and all of them will abandon him. He knows that's going to happen. He also knows that he's going to suffer a physical death that many, even to this day, say was one of the worst ways ever devised to kill a person, crucifixion. But he also knows that he's going to suffer something that he has never suffered and felt before, which is separation 
from a relationship that existed since forever, the relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All of this is weighing on him. I imagine that his thoughts were racing as well. He goes to the garden with his disciples in order, hoping that they will be the community that he needs in this moment. As he gets closer, he actually says, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Now, if I read this right, I know last week we talked about suicide. If I read this right, that's what Jesus is saying in this passage. He's saying, I would actually rather be dead than to have to go through these next few moments that I'm going to go through in this life. My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. So then we're told that in one of the prayers that Jesus prayed, it says that he prayed more fervently and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. Now this is actually a physical condition that one can experience when you experience extreme anxiety. You can actually sweat drops of blood. Now I've never sweat drops of blood, um, but I certainly have had a panic attack where it felt like that was going to happen. And it felt like you were going to explode, right? So when I think about Jesus in this moment and I think about what Jesus went through, I can go to Jesus because Jesus knows what it's like. I can go to Jesus and partly, oftentimes when I pray, I imagine Jesus. Um, and, and I know that I don't always imagine exactly what Jesus looks like. You know, I know, first of all, he's not a perfectly groomed Anglo-Saxon white European, um, you know. But um, uh, anyway, that, that's besides the point what you picture. But I picture Jesus, and I often picture the scars. And sometimes I actually, I actually just rub the scars in my imagination. Because we're told that his resurrected body still had the scars. We're told that in heaven, that Jesus appears as a lamb who was slain. That he keeps the scars throughout eternity. In a perfect place where we will be made whole, Jesus will remain with the scars. Why? He doesn't need to be reminded, but we do. We need to be reminded of everything that he went through for us everything that he was willing to endure for us. And so when we're struggling with whatever it is we're struggling with, we can go to Jesus because he knows. He knows what it's like. And he has promised to be with you always, even to the end of the age. So back to my story. After several months of struggling, I finally went to see a doctor. After some tests, trying to figure out if everything was working the way it was supposed to and some other kinds of tests, he came out with a diagnosis, which wasn't a surprise to me, um, but it still was hard to hear. He said, Patty, you have a general anxiety disorder. Again, you have to remember, I was the guy that tried to help everybody have a good time, right? I mean, for pity's sakes, I own 17 Nerf guns. I have a problem, okay? But... To hear that I had this anxiety or it was tough. Now, the doctor said something that helped me think about it a little bit, helped me frame it. He said, Patty, disorders are just the ways that we've learned to adapt to our broken world. And not all of those ways that we learn to adapt to our broken world are healthy for us. And so we have to relearn new ways to adapt to our broken world. And that helped a little, but I was still struggling to survive a day. I don't think I ever officially came up with a plan on how I would take my life but I certainly thought about it a lot because how I felt didn't feel like it was ever going to get better. It didn't feel like I was ever going to get out of this, and I felt like I was just a burden on everybody around me because all they, they had to listen to my problems all the time, right? 
And so I struggled with that and couldn't see any other way out of it. One day, I was at the church and I was prepping for a chapel program that I was in charge of. And before the chapel program, uh, I, and before students really started coming in, I started to have a panic attack. And I went into the back of the church, I called Trisha, and I actually kind of begged her for permission to call in sick and to leave and to go home. But I knew I couldn't do that, I had to stay there. And so I pulled myself together as much as I possibly could, and I walked back out into the church sanctuary to do the rest of the, to do the program and oversee that. A student came up to me, who I knew and knew me a bit, and, and said, hey, are you, are you okay? And I did what we do, right? I said, no, yeah, yeah, no, I'm fine, just stressed, just stressed. And that's usually the end of that story. But I went on, I had the program, and I got done with the program, I was cleaning up, and this same student, who became known to me as my little angel, came back up to me, got into my space, looked me in the eye, and said, are you sure you're okay because I don't believe you are? He was the first person to see me and to see what was going on outside of my immediate family. I couldn't do anything. I, I, you know, my eyes welled up with tears. I couldn't say what was actually going on. But for the first time, I said to someone else, no, I'm not okay. And I went home from that moment, and I knew I had to tar- start telling my secret. I knew that I couldn't keep this any longer because trying to be something you're not is exhausting. Trying to pretend everything's okay when it isn't, it takes every fiber of your being to do. And so one of the other lessons I learned in this process is that our secrets keep us sick. Our secrets keep us sick. So the more we hide and the more we try to pretend everything is going okay when it is not, is just keeping us more sick. And this is such a problem in so many of our churches, right? Because we dress up and we want everyone to think we've got it all together. Forget the fact that we were yelling at our kids on the way. Uh, Forget that we've got financial troubles that are weighing us down. Forget all this other stuff. Like when we show up at church, everything's good. It's like social media, right? We put our best foot out there. The problem is we have to start, we have to stop comparing all the things we know about ourselves to all the things we don't know about someone else. And I'm going to say that again. We have to We have to stop comparing all the things we know about ourselves to all the things we don't know about somebody else. We look at someone else like, oh, they got it all together. They've got this all figured out. We've all got stuff, okay? And I was actually uh, at a previous church that I worked uh, with that um, as I was walking out at the end of a worship service, I saw a woman sitting in the back, and I hadn't seen her before. She she was kind of staring off into the distance, and I went up and introduced myself to her, and I said, is everything everything okay? And she said, yeah, I, I just don't think I can come back here. And of course, I was worried. I was like, oh, what, what happened? Somebody say something, somebody do something. And she just said, no, no, I just, everybody here's got it all together and I don't. And I just said, oh, we just, we just tricked you, right? Because let's be honest, even the best dressed people still have holes in their socks, right? We've all got something that we struggle with. So knowing I couldn't keep my secret any longer, I called an emergency meeting with all of our executive ministry team, which included our chaplain's office, executive team, the staff. It included a couple of pastors from the church and a couple of the teachers from the theology department. And I got them together to start to share my secret. Um, And Trisha came with me. I had written out a statement because I didn't think I could get through it without a statement. 
Um, Trisha and I came in, we sat down, we're holding hands. I pull out the statement. I look around at my colleagues' faces and they are all scared. You can tell on their faces, they're worried. They have no idea what's going on. Trisha and I getting a divorce. Is somebody diagnosed with something? Is something happening? What's going on? I read through my statement that talks about my diagnosis. It talks about what I'm doing to address that, but how I feel like I'm barely holding it together and I don't know how to care for other people when I can barely hold it together. I got done, I folded it up, tears streaming down our faces, and I looked up back at my colleagues' faces, and their expressions had changed from fear to a sense of what I could only call relief, which was weird. <laughs> it was not what I was expecting at all. And then my friend Susan, one of the theology professors, is the first one to break the ice of the moment, and she actually said, so Patty, what you're telling me is you're messed up. And I said, well, well, yes. Yes, I am. And then she started to share what she was struggling with, and then the next person started to share what they were struggling with, and the next, and the next, and the next. Everybody sharing what they were struggling with. Everybody promising to encourage and be there for one another. Everybody saying, we're in this together, whatever it takes. And friends, for the first time in my life, I felt like I experienced church the way it was meant to be. Amen. Church as a group of broken people caring for one another and cheering one another on as together we reach out for Jesus. Amen. That's what this is all about, right? So um, with that, uh, obviously my journey over the next two and a half years especially was a difficult one. For two and a half years, it was all I could do to get through the day. The anxiety was consuming. But with the help of the multidisciplinary approach that we talk about, physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, with the help of my church, my doctor, my therapist, my family, all of these things working together and a lot of hard work, after about two and a half years, I remember I woke up one morning and suddenly I realized that my anxiety no longer controlled me. My anxiety no longer consumed me. It was no longer my every thought. And I have to be clear, I still walk with a limp, much like Jacob after he wrestled with God. I still have anxiety. It hasn't gone away. I have gotten a lot of healing in my life, no doubt. But there are still bad days, okay? Um, but there are spiritually two things that I learned during this time that I want to leave you with as thoughts in the spiritual part of things, okay? Again, there's always the multidisciplinary approach, but here are two things that made a huge difference in my life. One, during this time, I learned how to pray differently. Because for the longest time, I prayed and prayed and prayed for God to take my anxiety away, and I was constantly disappointed when that didn't happen, right? But then I was studying in 2 Corinthians 12, where the Apostle Paul talks about this thorn he had in the flesh. Now, we don't know what the thorn was. Scholars have all sorts of different thoughts and ideas. Was it something physical, something mental? Was it a person? We don't really know what the thorn was. But whatever it was, Paul hated it and he wanted it gone. So he begged God to take it away from him. But every time he asked God to take it away from him, all he heard God say was, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. And from that time of meditating and going over that story again and again and again, I learned to pray differently. And instead of begging God to take it away from me, I actually started to pray, God, please help me learn to live with this in a way that brings you glory. 
man, that changed so much of how I was feeling and how I approached. And, and it helped me stop being so disappointed in God all the times. I think it, it actually was the way, it was kind of where Jesus got to in the Garden of Gethsemane when he finally said, and we don't know how long it took for him to get to this place, but he finally said, my father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. So I learned to pray differently. But the second lesson has to do with identity. So at the point, one of the toughest points in, in my two and a half years of this journey, um, my pastor, my, my spiritual mentor, really kind of a, a, a father to me, his name's uh, Dr. John Dibdahl, passed away this year. Um, but, but John said to me at one point, he said, Patty, I think, you know, what I feel you really need to do is take a spiritual retreat. Go out into the wilderness, spend some time with God, and just let him speak to you. And I was scared about this because, you know, I'm also a bit of a perfectionist. And I was like, well, what if I do it wrong? And, and, and God doesn't speak and God doesn't show up. But I, I felt convicted it was the right thing to do, even though it was a hard thing to do. Because sometimes to heal, you got to do hard things. So I went out into the wilderness and I just took my camping gear. It's a very Northwest thing. We went out into the wilderness. I mean, just, you know, yeah. But, um, and uh, I took my Bible and I took a journal and that was it. And I spent... These two days wrestling with God, again, like Jacob in that night, and just like, God, why? Why is this happening? What, what's going on? What am I supposed to do? And then on the last day, I was like, I can't, I can't get out of my head. I climbed up to the, this mountain that was close by, and I got up on top of the mountain, and I let God have it. All 190 pounds of me against all of him. And I just just let out my heart, my thoughts, my frustrations, my fears, my anger. And for a while, I just poured it all out until I had nothing more to say. And I collapsed on the ground. And I don't know how long I was there. Hours, minutes, I have no idea. But after a while, I had these words that started to repeat in my head. And they kept repeating enough that I finally wrote them down. And the words were these. You are my son in whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. You are my son in whom I love and with whom you are well pleased. You are my son in whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. And I started, I wrote it down, and I, these are words that came from after Jesus' baptism. And God, Jesus hears the voice of God, and these are the words that he hears. But I hadn't studied this story recently. I hadn't memorized that scripture passage. And so I felt like this was God speaking to me on my mountaintop. And I felt so encouraged by this that God wanted to say, Patty, the most important thing about you is that I love you. And I'm pleased with you. And, and I came down that mountain and I thought, thank you, God. I can go back home. I can go back to my life. And I've heard from you. I know what to do. And I go back to home, which is both figuratively and literally in a valley, the Walla Walla Valley, right? And I go back to the valley and I, and I start two days later. I'm just as bad as I was before. It was like that mountaintop experience never happened. And here's the problem in the spiritual journey. We often think that we are supposed to have these mountaintop experiences all the time, right? That if we do it right, we'll live on top of that mountain. But have you ever noticed that there's not much that grows on top of a mountain, right? Like growth happens in the valley. Life happens in the valley, right? So, so I'm back there. I'm struggling. I don't know what to do. I call Dr. Dibdahl and I say, John, would you just come and pray for me? I didn't tell him anything that had happened. I just said, I'm in a bad place. I need you to pray over me. He came to my office, sat down across from me. He took my hands in his and he prayed. And when he ended that prayer, he said, Father, please remind Patty that he is your son in whom you love and with whom you are well pleased.'" 
I hadn't told him what happened on that mountaintop. I hadn't told him anything from this. But he said those words, and it was God telling me that I am with you as much in the valley as I am on the mountaintop. That I love you more than you could possibly imagine. I went through things that you wouldn't possibly imagine, all to show you that I love you, that I am with you, and that I am well pleased with you. So church, know this, that my hope and dream for all of our communities and all of our churches is that you would come to find Crosswalk as one of the safest places in this world for you to take risks, one of the safest places in this world for you to ask questions, and one of the safest places in this world for you to be vulnerable. And when you come and you connect with community and you connect with people as we are designed to do, as you connect with people, that you would know that you are not alone. And that as you realize that you are not alone, and as you do those things that you need to do, spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally, to heal and to work on you and to get better and to new, learn new ways to adapt to this broken world that are healthier, as you do that, that you would learn how to pray and that you could hear the words of God say the most important thing about you, that you are not your struggle, that you are a child of God in whom he loves and with whom he is well pleased. You are a son of God in whom he loves and with whom he is well pleased. You are a daughter of God in whom he loves and with whom he is well pleased. We are his children in whom he loves and with whom he is well pleased. Let him tell you who you are and then live that to the glory of God. Thank you for joining us for this teaching. Consider hitting the subscribe button to stay tuned for next week. If you'd like to support Crosswalk Chattanooga, go to crosswalkvillage.com slash Chattanooga and click the Give button at the far right of the ribbon at the top. Notice the campus drop-down menu and select Chattanooga. And if you'd like to come and worship with us on a Saturday morning, we would love that. When you do, please say hi to me. I'd love to learn your name. <laughs>